I think the role of women in Shetland in general in history is incredible and very resilient, very independent, strong women to see that they manage to survive different crises with the knitting was incredible. You know, there were failures with the fishing industry, uh, with the fish oil and the women carried on with the knitting and that allowed people to survive in very hard times. So I felt privileged to be part of that. Welcome to Mindful Business Founder, the podcast for fashion business founders seeking to build a meaningful and profitable business. I'm Liki Tang, and I'm here with you today to find out how mindful founders build strong businesses that deliver value to people and to the planet. Today, I'm delighted to share this conversation with my guest, Mathieu Ventrillon. Mathieu is the founder of Mathieu Ventrillon, a knitwear brand based in Fair Isle in Scotland. Fair Isle is the most remote inhabited island in the United Kingdom. You have probably seen many Fair Isle-inspired sweaters every winter, but not many of them have actually been made in Fair Isle because it's not only remote, but it's also a tiny, tiny island with not so many inhabitants. Mathieu Montrion came under the spotlight in 2015 when her brand was exposed to massive exposure in the fashion and luxury sector. If you haven't heard of her name, you can do a quick Google search and you will be amazed by this incredible story. But I don't want to focus on this part of her journey. Instead, today, I want to share with you the heartfelt stories of Matty, of her business, and of the knitwear tradition in Fair Isle. When I first encountered her brand, I felt that It was speaking directly from her heart. It's intriguing and difficult for me to explain, but it's something I felt deeply. And my first impression was right. I found out that Mathieu Ventrillon is a business venture founded on love and passion and on grit and resilience. In this first part of our conversation, Mathieu will share with us the story of Fair Isle and how knitwear is an embodiment of the island tradition and history, and how it has saved the community on several occasions. She will also explain why she decided to launch her brand in 2011 in order to preserve the tradition. This is really an amazing story we love to hear at Mindful Business Founder, and I'm absolutely thrilled to share it with you today. So welcome, Mathie Ventrillon. Hi, Mathie. I'm very glad to have you here today. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Can you tell us where you are originally from, uh, where you grew up, and uh, what you study at the university as well? I was born and I grew up in Venezuela, in South America, to uh, French father and a Venezuelan mother and I studied architecture. In Venezuela? 
Yes, I did. And I moved later and I moved to London and I was working in an architectural practice before coming to live in Ferrari. Oh, so, well, that was my question. Where do you live now? Yes, I live in Fair Isle in Shetland. It's a very small island sitting between Orkney and Shetland. So it's around 23 nautical miles from the closest land. So we're literally a little dot in the middle of the North Sea. In Scotland? Yes. How do we get from the continent from Scotland to the land part to the um, to the island? There's various ways of coming here. Um, the fastest, if you fly to London, and then from London you take a plane to Aberdeen, and then from Aberdeen a plane into Sombra Airport, which is the main airport in, Shet in the Shetland Islands. And then from Shetland you have to go to a small airport called Tingwall, and you take a small six-seater plane into Fair Isle. So that's the fastest way to get to the island. So how, we, how, how long are we talking? Like, for example, if I decide from London to go and visit you, how long would that take me? Uh, there was a moment where you could do it in one day, and that was amazing. Um, taking the first plane I think it was London City Airport at 8.55 with British <laughs> Airways going to Edinburgh and then from Edinburgh you will go to Sombra mm -hmm. and then you had just about time to drive to Tingwall Airport and catch the afternoon plane which was at uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. Hmm. So you could leave London at eight o'clock in the morning and be in Fair Isle at five o'clock in the afternoon, but mm -hmm. that's not the case anymore. Now the shortest way will take you today, so you will have to have a overnight stay in Shetland before reaching Fair Isle, and then you have the longest way, which is taking a train mm -hmm. uh, from London to Aberdeen, and then taking an overnight ferry that takes 12 hours, the North Link. And then you arrive early in the morning and you can take one of the morning flights from Tingwall to Fair Isle. So that is a good two full days traveling. And how many planes a week? Uh, we used to have about 13 planes per week, but now we are reduced to one plane a week because of the pandemic. Okay, because of the pandemic. Normally it's 13, so we get, uh, we have a winter and a summer timetable, and the summer timetable obviously is catering for visitors and tourism. So we have basically planes from Monday to Saturday. There's some days where we got three planes in a day, and some days where there's only two. Uh, but Effectively, we cover every day of the week. Brilliant. How many people live on the permanent basis on Fair Isle? Uh, we have approximately 54 permanent inhabitants, including young children. Yes. Oh, so we're talking about maybe 20 families. 
20 households. Yes. There is actually, there's 18 crofts in the islands. It's about 23 houses in total. And um, tourists, if they travel to Fair Isle, can they stay overnight? Are there guest houses, accommodation? Yes, there is. Unfortunately, uh, in spring 2019, the Bird Observatory burned down completely. So that was one of the best accommodations, the Feral Lodge. So it's not just uh, the Center for Research and Monitoring of Birds, but also offered uh, accommodation. So they have really good quality guest rooms and suite, almost like a little hotel. And then there's a selection of uh, bed and breakfasts in the island and one self-catering uh, accommodation. And how big is the island? The island is 15 square kilometers. 15 square? Oh, wow, it's very tiny. <laughs> yeah, it's very small. It's three kilometers wide in the widest part by five kilometers long. Mm -hmm. And what, the, the, what do people live off there? It's mainly a crofting community. So uh, every croft has a sheep in their land and they're bred for the market. So it's basically for the meat industry. And then it's the wool. I will say that the main, main activity is crofting. And then we got services. So obviously everyone that is employed to provide services to the island. So roadworks, the ferry, transport, uh, education, health. So people do get employed. And we have our own electricity company because we have a, a system a combination of solar power and wind power uh, to supply the island. And in fact, it was, I think, one of the first communities in Europe to, in the 1980s to produce electricity to sustain life completely, so without having to rely on anything else. And it's been like that since then. So, but I guess that there were many more inhabitants on Fair Isle before. Yes, in fact, I arrived in the island in 2007 and it was around 70, 74 people. I think we probably got to a point where we were nearly 80. Uh, you do need people in small places like this. So we are now on a period where it's a bit of a struggle. I mean, we got approximately 23, 24 adults between 25 and 60. And these are the adults that take most of the jobs and responsibilities. So we all share. I run my business full time, but also I'm part of the fire service and the crew that attends uh, the aeroplanes. So we have a regulated airstrip. I'm the fire crew that attends uh, when a plane is depart taking off or landing. So it is, and, and you know, people work on the boat, so everyone has multiple jobs. 
plus running their craft. So a lot of people have their own businesses, but also they do community work, whether it's with the electricity company, the transport, or, you know, maintenance of the roads, that kind of thing. So it's a very close-knit community that you live in. Very much so, yes. first time you arrived on Fair Isle, when was it? It was actually February 2007, at the end of winter, so it was quite, yeah. It was chilly, Quite a journey. Yes, we had a very big storm that year, and I remember receiving phone calls and people saying, don't go out and don't open the door, it's very dangerous, wait until you know the wind drops down and if you need anything you can phone people and they will help you I was alone with my son Sebastian at that time and he was only two and a half years old so yeah it is and and it's true Um, if you've not experienced you really don't understand uh, how dangerous it is common to have hurricane speed winds during winter so if you open a door and there's a ghost, it can really, you know, flung you out and you can have a severe injury. <laughs> but still, I understand that the first time that you arrive on the island, you decided that you want to stay there. Uh, well, it's a long application process because the island belongs to the National Trust for Scotland. So you can't just move to live in Feral, you have to go through an application process and there's a selection process. So we applied as a family living in London and it took approximately a year for the first notification that we were shortlisted. And we didn't get through with uh, with the first selection of people. We were shortlisted, but we were not successful. But they kept us in a pool of people because we said that we were still interested if they had a property available in the future so they contacted us later on in 2006 and said there's been someone moved out and a flat has become available mm. and that was really quick because they said because you were shortlisted already so we're just going to offer it to you know a couple of families and we were successful in that one so within I think that we were notified I think it was in November and in February we moved and yeah that was it and I, I did visit the island before doing in between the first application and moving and we came for Christmas and I really liked it. It was very dark and a bit gloomy, but there was so much beauty in it. And it looked like a really safe place to bring up children. So that really, yes, it was considering London and the fact that I was going to be very busy with architecture, um, you know, balancing what was going to happen to my son then it was a no-brainer to to actually come here 
Yeah, and so when you arrived on Fair Isle, I guess that you you couldn't. I mean, maybe you could, but um, you couldn't be involved in your work as an architect as much as you used to in London. So you realize that you need to make a career change in living on Fair Isle, right? Yes. In in fact, one of the things they request when you make an application is you have to come up with this plan or you have to have an idea of how you're going to sustain yourself in the island. So it is not, uh, they, they are very clear that there are no job opportunities as in permanent employment. So there is work, but you need to know how you're going to sustain yourself. Uh, so I knew that it was a change of life completely and a change of career. I was basically living my life as an architect and becoming something else. And I wasn't sure what that was going to be, to be honest. Um, so what did you put on your application? The idea we had was to create a cafe uh, in the ground floor of the lighthouse, which is where we uh, moved to and I always thought you know I like cooking uh, and I mm. suggest it can be really nice I have a history of good pastry makers in the family so I thought yes I can do that at a small cafe and a good knowledge of coffee being from South America mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought yes I can combine that and you know open a small cafe in the summer so that was the original idea um, it never took place uh, it, it never happened but uh, yeah it, it could have Once we arrived, uh, they were looking for people within the knitting cooperative and I showed interest and they showed me how to do finishing mm-hmm. um, for a few uh, weeks and they thought I was really good. So they kept me uh, working in the cooperative and that's how I learned to knit and I learned about feral knitting and I fell in love with it and I think it was the more I discover about the tradition and the heritage, the fonder I grew of the the knitting. Um, I think the role of women in Shetland in general in history is incredible and very resilient, very independent, strong women to see that they manage to survive different crises with the knitting was incredible. You know, there were failures with the fishing industry, uh, with the fish oil, and the women carried on with the knitting, and that allowed people to survive in very hard times. So I felt privileged to be part of that. From my browsing on the internet, I understood that the Fair Isle knitting used to be pretty, a pretty big thing before. Um, yes, well, I think um, 
it's it's been through history in the 1860s um i think 1850s 1860s is spread um around the northern hemisphere and that's when it became known as fair isle uh, or at least that's what it's been recorded um there's not many records prior to that but it spread at that time and since then uh, it has been basically a quintessential british garment obviously there was a peak within the fashion industry when prince edward uh, wore uh, one of the garments and then there's also the stanley cursiter uh, painting the feral jumper and mm -hmm. that happens in the 1920s and i think there was a big um growth and interest in the knitwear and i think that is the time when it got cemented basically as a quintessential british garment and since then i think if it has had a presence uh, always around christmas time mm. winter it always appear in the I mean, later on in the 1980s, with the introduction of industrial uh, knitting machines and with the introduction of the hand frame knitting machines to the islands, uh, yes, you know, it grew in popularity. So a lot of the, the term became um, applied to any stranded knitting, basically, that, that will have a motif. In it, so everything that had uh, motifs and more than two colors was called Fair Isle. And since then, it hasn't stopped. So in the 1980s, you notice the appearance of garments within uh, designers in the catwalks, also the high street shops, and that is a trend that has continued nonstop every winter there is a feature of feral motifs within the fashion industry and we have a revival now to the more traditional garments specifically the v-necks the tank tops or, or sleeveless v-necks um, for the male fashion because there's been a revival of the british gentleman <laughs> and kind of the fashion of the 1930s, you know, with Downton Abbey and that kind of uh, programs. So, um, yeah, so you see a lot of people wearing beautiful V-necks and you see the likes of uh, Dax have a lot in their winter collection, a lot of the traditionals, and I think they buy from a producer in Shetland. Um, so they're industrially made garments, but they are, you know, they're using Shetland wool and they use the traditional uh, Shetland patterns. So that's actually quite good. And yeah, so I don't know if it, if it has slowed down. Um, I think there's still a, a demand uh, for it. And yeah, well, actually, my my impression is that um, it's not that all fair isle knitwear come from fair isle. No, 
No, not at all. In fact, that already happened in the 19th century. There was a mass emigration uh, in Feral in 1862, where 150 people left the island. So there was half of the population in one go. Mm. Um, They left in the spring that year, and a lot of them went to new... Brunswick in Canada. Okay. And a lot of people also went to Orkney. Um, but it was a big, big impact uh, for natives in the island. And interestingly enough, there was a supplier in Shetland who was trading uh, feral garments made in Fair Isle. And it, the advert ran for two years and then it stopped. And that was right after the mass immigration. And I wonder if there is a relationship with the shift from manufacturing garments in Fair Isle and then manufacturing the garments in Shetland. So because the, the, some people say that it has to do with the decline of demand for lace knitting, which was the main uh, knitting that was done in Shetland. And as that demand declined and a demand for feral knitwear increased, knitters started to shift and they started to knit feral. And I think that was really the moment where the island basically, it's not that it lost its uniqueness in terms of of the needs where they were manufacturing but I think that is the moment where things shifted and the garments started to be manufactured somewhere else and then in the 1980s with the introduction of the industrial knitting machines that could produce what is called stranded knitting then that was it so everyone could basically produce these garments and and even a lot of the motifs that you see in the high street and a lot of the definition of feral has become generic and it doesn't necessarily reflect the motifs and traditions of the island but it's been also a positive thing because it has kept uh, the interest and it has kept the need were alive. If it wasn't for that, I mean, with the amount of people knitting at the moment here in Firal, it would have been impossible to to continue. And it is in decline. I mean, at the moment, we have four commercial knitters in the island and the production is very, very small. So um, one of the businesses, uh, there's another lady that has an online presence, but she makes hats and accessories. And then there's another one that's doing accessories, but they tend to sell to visitors. So the production is so small that, yes, we are really at a very fragile moment in time. Things in Shetland are slightly different. So there is a increase in young people involved with the knitting, um, the big companies that produce the 
uh, wool are also entering into the manufacturing of garments using their own brand and they are selling outside the islands. So that is a complete different story. So while it seems to be booming in Shetland, Fair Isle is, is at a very fragile moment. I think it has to do with the lack of uh, people and also the fact that we are not united since the uh, dissolution of the cooperative i think when you have people working on their own then you have a you know your presence weakens and when was it that the dissolution of the cooperative uh, in 2011 in september 2011 so there's no cooperative anymore in, on Fair Isle? No, no mm. unfortunately there isn't. The first time you got acquainted with knitting was through the cooperative and, yes. um, and then you were very gifted and so you made a decision. What was this decision? Well, it was... I kind of got thrown into it um, when they dissolved the cooperative I was heartbroken I thought wow you know it, it was a moment where I was just discovering the knitting and I was getting more and more involved with the history and I was starting to research about the connections, you know, with the Baltic countries and the trade, the movement of the garments, the similarities with some of the Dutch patterns and um, the stories of, you know, just reading letters and accounts of the teachers and the priests that came to visit Fair Isle in the 1850s. Um, so you really did the historian work, the work of a textile historian. Uh, it, yes, and I think it's really important to understand what it means, you know, and I don't know how to explain it, but it's not just enough with knowing the motives and how things are put together. It has to do with this, with the island. And I remember my impression was that people have come and gone and everyone that arrives here in one way or another ends up contributing to the knitting history of this island. And I thought that was fascinating, not just, you know, the resilience as a community and the women, the strengths, the way they overcame hardship, but the fact that the knitting was there. It's been always here, is more than five, six hundred years of consecutive manufacturing of knitwear. It's never stopped. So I thought this is incredible, you know, and there is definitely something with this island that is it's not just that you have to be born here or no, it's the moment you're here that you experience life, that you deal with the ship that you look at the history, as this, you know, the hardship of how to trade and how entrepreneurial they were. It's anything, you know, it's, it's just, for me, I just 
became really, really passionate and really interested. And I thought, you know, people need to hear this and people need to know about Fair Isle and about the island because it belongs here. And I think that, yes, doing that research, reading those letters, understanding you know that for a small community when you got 350 people living here and 150 leave because they mm. cannot sustain themselves must yes. have been one of the hardest things they went through and if you imagine it was months of traveling on a boat people needed money so only the most able were able to leave so the people that was left here were probably elderly, the poorer, or those that decided we are not living. So I think that must have had a, a great impact as a community. And the recovery from that, you know, I think we're still probably in, in the process of, you know, and it'll be really sad to lose the knitting to say that one day there's only one or two people doing it that should never happen and that's what I thought okay I need to find a way of working from the island that I can secure that presence not only making people aware but also securing the continuation of the trade as a way of living and as a way of surviving and generating an income, not just as a side thing that you do, but, you know, not being your main job. I always thought the knitting should be the priority. And that's what I'm still trying to do. <laughs> so that was in 2011. You saw that the cooperative was disappearing and you've had this mission of carry on this tradition and this strength of the island. Yes. Right. So is that the reason why you decide to, to, to launch your own brand? Yes. Yes. That was the reason. I just could not let it go. I just thought, you know, even if, if someone else starts, it needs to be worked in a way that has longevity, that is a legacy and something left that can benefit others. So how did you start? Did you have to start a new business plan, go through training? Practically, how did you start? Like that, I did. Um, I, well, I have learned already the basics and I came back home and disheartened and I just thought, okay, I'm going to register a company name, Feral Needwear, and I'm going to open a website and I'm going to do it online because remember we were knitting for visitors to the island so the only way to buy a genuine feral garment made here in feral was to come to the island mm -hmm. and I thought okay we need to put it out there people need to reach us and technology was allowing that to happen so I created a website and I put six small swatches 
um, that were not even my color combinations. It was one of the <laughs> knitters of the cooperative um, because I was too, um, I wasn't experienced enough yet. Um, and, uh, and then it just, you know, it flourished. Um, I got a lot of interest. There was people placing orders. And what I realized is that people was asking for different things and it became a bespoke service because that's what the demand was for and then I joined the Walpole group uh, in one of their mentoring programs the Crafted UK. I was selected and I did a year uh, mentoring program with them which was amazing, uh, a unique opportunity really to have access to, I will say, one of the most ethical, you know, groups of traders in the UK, um, uh, you know, people in the Walper group is really committed to excellence mm -hmm. and perfection, craftsmanship is a really incredible environment to be and I learned so much uh, with them and I think that allowed me to see the possibilities and the value of the skills I learned here mm -hmm. and also the importance of passing on those skills which has been an island tradition as well so I Yes, I started to grow the business then and I realized that just doing the bespoke was very limited and there, there was mm -hmm. a lot of people that couldn't afford a bespoke garment and that wanted something that would be, you know, still made here. So, and with the idea of passing on the skills and doing that, I develop a product called Artisans, Feral Artisans. And the idea of that is to train people and teach them how to knit feral garments using the flat bed knitting machines and hand finishing. And it's all to do with recognizing those skills. It takes a lot of time and experience. It's, sometimes people think that by using a knitting machine, you know, you're not, and actually you need skills to do that. It takes yes. training. And yes. uh, then the way you do the colors and the motifs and the shaping of the garments, I mean, it took us to develop that product. It took a year and a bit to make sure that we were getting the standard sizes correct and it's in order to preserve the continuity of the patterns in the round is one of the most challenging design things because you are working with specific repeats and in order to achieve a size, you know, you either cut yeah. your patterns in half or a quarter when you're joining the seams on the yes. sides, which we avoid at all costs. So to actually reach the sizes, we have to work with tension. And it is a very, very complicated um, thing to do. And 
So, but we manage, we develop uh, the standard sizes and they fit beautifully. So that was quite a lot of work. And the system allow us to have someone trained within two weeks to produce the garment. I think that was very successful and the idea is to work with interns and hopefully move to apprenticeships one day but then there's you know a lot of limitations um, to achieve that we have constraints within the accommodation settings in the island there's no place basically to accommodate interns and that has been yeah probably the biggest challenge is getting people in everything that has the label artisan fair eye artisans or mativantillon is made on fair eye everything is made on fair eye right yes by hand in fair eye by hands in fair eye yeah no hand knitted but it's made by hand because it's the machines are manually operated and you only produce the flat panels and then you have to do all the finishing by hand. And do you use special type of wool? We use, uh, yes, Shetland wool. Mm. And as I said, the, the, the wool is sourced by a local spinning mill in Shetland mm -hmm. that's been a family-run business since the 19th century, I think it's 1880s, uh, when it first started. And they still have some of the original machines. And yes, it's, it's incredible. And the, the quality is very good. And the yarn is still very soft compared to other sheep wool available in the country so Shetland is still one of the softest uh, that you can find from a ship except from Medina of course that you know it's a completely different thing but uh, mm. British wool yes is still one of the softest one yeah so the limitation comes from the the niches and which is actually limited by the space that you can Or you can have to accommodate those people and also from the wool? Yes, I mean, and accommodation is a big issue because as I said to you, we do have B&Bs and we do mm -hmm. have a self-catering, but this is, you know, you can't really have someone for three, six months at the time yeah. living on a B&B and It'll be competing with the tourism, which is the base for these businesses mm -hmm. and this accommodation. So it becomes way too expensive. So there's nothing at the moment available uh, to accommodate interns. So I have had interns in the past. And yes. uh, my last intern became uh, an employee for three years. And now oh. she is running her own business here in the island. Um, and yeah, so it is, and that was one. And I have had, I think, approximately six interns, and they mm -hmm. have all had to stay in my house. So it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it, you can't. It's really, nice, but 
yeah, yeah but you can't run a business <laughs> no you can't yes. run a business like that so um, i have a lot of constraints and i think that's one of the issues with growing that the possibilities of growth are very limited by geographical constraints and social constraints so it, it's it's really barriers big, big barriers to overcome. I hope you enjoyed listening to the amazing story of Matty, of Fair Isle, of its history, and of its women. This is such an inspiration. I still haven't bought my piece of knitwear from Fair Isle because it has so much value in it. And it's like a once-in-a-lifetime purchase of a garment that I would cherish all my life and pass it to the next generation. Don't miss our next episode. It will be the second part of our conversation with Matty. We'll go to a more hands-on level in our conversation and discuss in detail some of the challenges in Matty's business and learn how to nurture an inspirational brand. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and talk to you soon. Did you like this episode? If you enjoyed listening to Mindful Business Founder, you can share this with your friends who are also on the sustainability journey. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help other people like you find this podcast. Bye now and talk to you soon.